0: The Team Never
1: Quit podcast is sponsored by Navy Federal Credit Union. Navy Federal Credit Union likes to reward their members for using their credit cards. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. Team
2: Never Quit Radio.
3: All right, everybody. Welcome back to the TNQ Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Team Never Quit podcast. Hanging out today with Marcus and Melanie in the studio. What's up, everybody? What's happening? <laughs> what is happening? How was y'all's How was y'all's weekend?
3: Awesome, blessed, and unstoppable, man. We had a blast. I I, did, I just stayed home, chilled, relaxed, relaxed, kicking it. That's awesome. Melanie had a, she she had a busy weekend.
4: I had a busy weekend, but it was great. I loved it. I loved, I loved everybody that was. It was just a really fun time. That's so. great. I miss yeah.
1: my husband. Oh. Aw. <laughs> hey, we've got a great Patreon question today. What is your favorite patriotic song or songs? Dude, that that's a no-brainer. Come on. That's just a no-brainer. Jody, ha- Jody, you want to go first? Yeah, Jody. What you think? They-
2: oh, 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 y'all ask me. Uh, it used to be God Bless the USA, but it's so overplayed. I'm just like, oh. Um, but I was at the league. Me, I think it was me and my brother and my mother. We went and saw Barbara Mandrell. And Lee Greenwood opened for Barbara Mandrell in 1984, and he debuted that song uh, at the, well, maybe not debuted it, but the first time I heard it was at that concert live, and I loved it. I had it on my old tape recorder, my old Walkman, and I would play it over and over and over again.
4: Same. Mine's Lee Greenwood. I mean, every time, especially him singing it live, it brings tears to my eyes every single time.
3: Yep, that's mine. Yeah. I bet you get old Jimmy or Uncle Ted on the guitar playing the Star Spangled Banner, but you know, uh, that's, I mean, that's the go-to. That's the first one popped in your head. Since we all agreed, what would be like the second?
4: Probably, um, that's a hard one. I actually have a playlist of patriotic
3: songs. Is God Bless
1: Texas a patriotic song? Damn right That's my favorite. (laughs) What are you talking about?
3: (laughs) He blessed it with his own two hands. That's right. (laughs)
2: But that is. If
3: that counts, I'm- yeah. yeah, yeah, I was gonna throw that out in the <laughs> beginning. That's always that's talking about it. that in Texas women. That's right. That's a great patriotic sign. Thank you, Hank. Um,
4: yeah, I can't think of any. Well, I know we're missing thing. one. Who do you think's the best? Toby
3: Keith's got some good ones. Yeah, putting foot for ass, put to ass. You know he, he he can he can write her some good ones up.
4: Granger Smith, wrote, Granger's good. Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: oh, Brooks and Dunn, only in America.
3: Yeah.
4: That's
1: a good cool one, man. Good one.
3: That's a real good one, actually.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of really good who ones.
4: Who do you think's the best? Um, who was the best singer with uh, the National Anthem?
1: Ooh, Like ever oh, or like Super Bowl? Like or? ever.
2: Like, I, I got the best and the worst. It's the same person. Okay. Fer- Fergie. Oh. Is that from true? From the, from the, no. Look up Fergie singing. I want to say it was the Daytona 500 she sang the national anthem and then she sang like the NBA All-Star Game and the Daytona 500 was incredible. The All-Star Game was atrocious.
3: (laughs) We all have good days. did she
4: mess up a word or something the last time she
3: sang That's one of the hardest songs to sing from what I understand so I don't ever say anything about anybody. Having to sing that thing? Did Was it Whitney Houston? That, yeah, that, did,
4: Whitney Houston belted it out. Just freaking belted
3: that sucker out, like and spine. probably
4: Kelly Clarkson or something.
3: What about my, uh, my
2: favorite version is Carl Lewis?
3: What that
4: Carl Lewis? I oh, the,
3: I got the what the worst? Roseanne Barr? Roseanne's up there, but Carl Lewis is. <laughs> it's my favorite because it's probably
2: the worst, and he was just trying to do so good. And I mean, you think yeah, about he, it, I saw that? That's right.
1: Okay,
3: I remember that. He was trying real hard.
2: Oh, he was trying. He was trying. And he, said, he had to apologize. All right, I'll do better.
3: Yeah. <laughs> remember, he, was really, yeah he was really, he was trying hard.
2: Pulled I think it's on YouTube.
4: Yeah, we'll pull that up. Good Patreon question. Thank great you,
1: Andrew. Great Patreon yeah, question. Hey, if you want to ask your question, join us at patreon.com slash Quit. You can actually ask your questions to the guest, to the host. You can get some sweet swag, challenge coin, all kind of other cool stuff. Make sure to check that out at patreon.com slash Quit. We've got a great guest in store. Family, sort of. Kind of everyone's related in Louisiana, apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, Mary Sarah does a good job in Nashland. True that. She
4: does. Yes, yes. she's amazing. Yeah.
1: We have an incredible guest, Jody Ploucher. Did I say it right? Yep. Am I good? Yep. He shares his experience being kidnapped yeah, by his karate teacher. Don't get this wrong. Man. Don't get this wrong. Okay. <laughs> being rescued and his father subsequently fatally shooting his abuser on TV. We'll also get to hear about his book Why Gary Why and his work to educate on sexual violence. Welcome to the show, Jody.
2: Thank you for having me.
4: So I found out about you because my sister listens to all the true crime podcast and she heard your story on one of those. I don't remember which one it was, but she was telling me about it and then she said your name and I was like, first I thought it was a crazy story and then I was like, wait. If he's a plochet, he's got to be related. <laughs> so I looked you up in the rest of history, we're, and sure enough, yeah, related. we're Excited to hear your uh, your story, and we just if you just want to kick it off and just tell us, and then we'll pop in and ask questions.
2: All right, so it started off when I was in fifth grade. Um, I was in class, and they handed us a flyer to take karate. I literally took my karate flyer and I folded it up and threw it in the garbage on the way out of the class. I remember it to this day, threw it in the garbage can. And I didn't think nothing about it. Well, my little brother, he had a, he went to a different school and they gave him the same flyer and he brought that flyer home and gave it to my mother Well, I was playing sports, football, basketball, maybe softball or baseball at that time. And I didn't think I had time for karate. Well, my little brother, he wasn't into any sports, so my mother thought it would be a good idea to kind of get him involved in something. So she enrolled him, and when she enrolled him, she enrolled my older brother and the neighbor friend, uh, her best friend, Miss Eileen, her son, Mark. They enrolled him, too. So it was me, Mikey, Bubba, and Mark that went to go take these karate lessons. And we went to the first lesson, and it went fine. We went to the second lesson, and the karate teacher didn't show up. <clears throat> we went to the third lesson, he didn't show up again. So the, the organization that had created these karate lessons turned our name over to another young up-and-coming karate teacher named Jeff Dusett, And he was going to honor the remaining – because I think it was like 10 lessons for $35 or whatever. So he was going to honor the karate lessons. So that's how we ended up sort of taking karate from a man named Jeff Dusett. Well, after we went to a, a few karate classes at his place, he is explaining to us how they had a karate team. Think of like uh, the karate kid. Where they go fight in tournaments, and so he invited us to go see the movie "They Call Me Bruce," which was a karate movie. Awesome movie. He, uh, I, you know what? I'm gonna have to rewatch it because I don't I don't remember it being awesome. But no, hey, no, it's awesomely
3: is. bad. Those the, that time frame of those movies are so. They call me Bruce, right? It was like when you sit down to eat with the nunchucks.
2: I couldn't block the other things out of my mind, but I think I blocked that movie out of my mind. But like I said, I'm gonna have to rewatch it again. I just got to, speaking of awesomely wonderful, like the Love Boat. Have you watched the Love Boat lately? Okay, so it last
3: week the terribly t- <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> Believe it or not, last week somebody brought that up, dude. So we we uh, I got on YouTube and fired that thing up. the The jingle is awesome. Did Did
2: you know the last season Dionne Warwick sang it? It's terrible.
3: No, I didn't. Great
2: I just found that out. I almost <laughs> cried. I was like, no, the, the, the beginning is it's love exciting. And and the best thing about the love boat, when you go back and watch it is seeing like the people who were in it, like, you know, Scott Bale when he was like nine years old and, uh, Charlie's angels. They did a cross, a crossover between Charlie's angels and the love boat, which was awesome. So <laughs> anyway, so we go see, they call me Bruce. And after my cousin was having a birthday party at like Chuck E cheese or something. So we the karate team went over to Chuck E. Cheese and we all hung out and played games and video games and jumped around in the, the toys or whatever, watched the rocket fire explosion. And Jeff just seemed like this really great guy. You know, he's, you know, attentive. He, he told my mother that we were excellent at karate and had a future. And so they bought all of this stuff. And that was just Jeff at that point grooming, not just me, but the family. Because at this point, Jeff has had, not touch me at all and so he just became really liked by the family so he was welcome to come over on saturday nights when we'd play trivia well i guess it wasn't trivial password is what it was it eventually led into trivial pursuit later but i mean the family would get down at my house and just hang out and daddy would cook and jeff would, was you know one of us well unbeknownst to them he was again grooming me it started out I think when we were, like, stretching at karate practice, he, he, like, put his hands up. Oh, your 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 thighs are tight, and you got to stretch. And and so he's grabbing, like, almost not my crotch, but, like, on the side of my crotch. And he's going, oh, yeah, you're tight, you're tight. And that was just him kind of working his way into the, inappropriately touch me. It led up to the point to where he finally started sexually abusing me. It, I won't say the first time because I think the grooming – when he's touching me inappropriately, that is sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. But when he really went, like, full scale, it was in Houston. It was a karate tournament in Houston. And he called me up to the front of the van, and he said, come up here. And he told me, basically, I'm going to perform oral sex on you tonight. And I'm 10 years old. And I'm like, well, I have no clue why he wants to do this. Well, that night, after the movie went off, his old John Wayne movie, turned the TV off, and he just slipped underneath the covers, and he performed oral sex with me. Oh and gosh. he did that probably for about a month and then he decided okay now I'm gonna have sex with you and that was in May and that went on until you know he eventually kidnapped me in uh February of 1984 and you know the rest is history I guess.
4: Were you terrified when he started doing that like the first night that he went under the covers?
2: Well I I, like I said I didn't yeah yeah I was I was not happy I I mean there was obviously like I, I was freaked out but I didn't know why he would want to do that. Like, I didn't know at the 10 years old, mm-hmm. I didn't know that, you know, my private parts was for more than just peeing,
3: yeah. you know?
2: And so he went underneath the covers and it didn't take me, it didn't take me long to figure out, oh, wow, this feels wonderful. But it wasn't, and I, I mentioned this in my book, it wasn't that I was enjoying it, but my body was responding as a human body would. hmm so yeah, there was physical pleasure, but there was mental anguish. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's why a lot of survivors of sexual abuse, they have, you know, bad memories because and they blame themselves is because at some point your body is just going to respond like a human body responds. So it doesn't matter whether it's a, a hundred year old person mm-hmm. or a karate teacher or a spouse, right. not a spouse, a, a partner that whoever's doing it, it's going to feel good.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: That mean, that does, But it doesn't mean you're enjoying it. Because I, I wasn't enjoying it, but my body was like, hey, that's
4: up. Oh my gosh. That's so crazy.
0: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just
3: perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from
2: McDonald's.
3: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. ba 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 So you didn't tell your parents or anything at this?
2: No. I, I I decided I would just keep quiet. And even after he kidnapped me. Am I getting ahead of the story? So, uh, yeah. yeah. He kidnapped me. In 1984, because he owed money and he was skipping town, and so when he skipped town, he took me with him because I was his love interest for the last year. And even when they arrested him, and I brought me back, I still lied and said he didn't touch me. And of course, they they probably were clued in that he had, but I lied and lied and lied because I knew I went to the uh, hospital, and I knew eventually the hospital exam would come back and prove that he had. Mm-hmm. So I'd made up my mind that I wasn't going to tell on him because I didn't want him to. C- I'm thinking at 11 years old. Yeah. But I knew the hospital report that I decided when that came back, I would tell. Let's go back to
4: the day of the kidnapping.
2: So, the, the day I was kidnapped was Sunday, February 19th, 1984. He said his brother had dropped him off and he wanted to borrow my mom's car. And his brother was supposed to be installing carpet into one of the other kids in the karate class's parents' house. They were building a house. And He asked my mother, can I borrow your car? She said, yeah. And he said, can Jody come with me? And she said, don't keep him going all day. And we left. And instead of going to look for the carpet, we went to his brother Mike's house and picked up some clothes. And then we took my mother's car from Baton Rouge to Port Arthur, Texas. That's where his mother and sister lived. So we were there. His mother called my mom like that night and said yeah jeff's here with jody and my mother was like he's got school tomorrow he needs to get home and jeff lied to his mom and said oh uh yeah i'll bring you back tomorrow but he was telling her he was going to new york city well we ended up going to california to los angeles oh
4: my gosh That is crazy, and then this is back when nobody had cell phones or anything like that, so there was no easy way to just contact your parents or anything.
2: No, this was, you know, we took a bus from Orange, Texas, to Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles, California, and we had no money. So what eventually happened was Jeff contacted a karate uh, instructor out of Houston. His name is Al Garza, and he told Al that he had taken a trip to California for a tournament and his van was stolen and all of its money was in there. And so Al wired us $600. It ended up being like $550 with the fees that Western Union got. So that was what Jeff had. He had $550, his brother's birth certificate, so he could get an identification and no plan whatsoever. Oh,
1: my gosh. Were you freaking out at this point? Or were you kind of just like long for the ride because you didn't know what was going on?
2: I was pretty much alone for the ride. I mean, he he told me that if he doesn't get the money to pay the guy off that he owed, that he was going to go to California and take me with him. So I didn't know that particular day was going to be the day. But, I mean, it was almost like, I mean, he took me to Disneyland. So, I mean, even though I was, quote, unquote, kidnapped, it wasn't like I was gagged and bound, thrown in a van, and, you know, he was asking ransom for me. I mean, he took me to Disneyland. I got to see the Hollywood sign. I thought that was kind of awesome. Uh, we walked around downtown LA and we got to see him film an, like a little segment for the TV show Hill Street Blues. So that was kind of cool. Um, you know, I don't want to say I enjoyed it, but I, I kind of did.
4: Well, you were also so young. You were what? 10 or 11? Eleven. Yeah. I mean, our son is 10. I, I can't imagine someone just picking up and leaving with him. Your mom had to have been freaking out.
2: Oh, uh, I made fun of her because she like lost like 20 pounds in the 10 days I was born. I was like, the kid that diet is the best diet I've ever
4: seen. <laughs> she up to nothing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. She had to have been losing her mind, especially back then when you couldn't track phones or anything like that. I would have lost my mind.
3: So he was, he was, he was good to you while you were on the trip. It was, it was like, like, he was yes.
4: trying to be a partner.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. You know, other than the few times he had sex with me on the trip, I would say, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, he wasn't, I, it, in his mind, he was in love with me. I mean, that's, that's how pedophiles are.
4: Yeah, like, he thinks that he's doing a good thing. Like, it's like you're a boyfriend. And you were so right. young that you don't understand any of it. And it's like, oh, well, I get to see cool things I've never seen before.
2: Well, I knew what he was doing wasn't right. That's why I didn't tell on him. But yeah, I mean, it was almost like we were a couple and we were on this like little, to him, it was like a honeymoon.
4: That's fucking crazy. (laughs) Oh my gosh.
1: How many days were y'all in California before the FBI started coming out?
2: Sunday, he left. We stayed in Port Arthur Monday. We left the bus Tuesday. We got to LA Thursday at 2 a.m. And so let's see, 19... I was brought back March first. So I was kidnapped the nineteenth, and I came home March first. So we were—I was going. You know, it was a leap year. Um, we were gone. I was gone ten days, and it was a week before my mother heard from me. So he took me on a Sunday, and the next Sunday he let me call home and tell her I was okay. My gosh,
4: that is so bizarre. Did how old was he?
2: He was only twenty-five, and and he was like. 25 and a month and a half old. I mean, he had just turned 25 February 3rd of that year.
3: All right. So then what? Like, you, Mom. All right, did-
2: so he, he lets me call home on that Sunday. So over the next couple of days, he's in contact with my mother. Now the police are at the house, they're recording the phone conversations. They're trying to figure out where we are asking questions about whether I had like a jacket on. Cause it's February in New York and it had been cold, but we were in California and, he called and uh, he let me call, and my mother asked. I had to call collect because we, we were running out of money. So, my mother asked for time and charges. So, what that means for those who are younger is when you would make a collect phone call, that was the person you were calling would pay for that. So, she accepted the charges. And the operator, when we hung up the phone, came back on the, the line and said, Okay, that call was 22 minutes and it was going to cost you $14. So, when the operator came back to give her time and charges, Mike Burnett with the Bat Rouge Sheriff's Department got on the phone and said, Look, I need to know where that phone call came from. This is a federal investigation, FBI's involved. There's a kidnapping. And she told him uh, it was Samoa Motel, uh, 425 West Catella, Anaheim, California, room 38. And, you know, with the, they contacted Anaheim police and they busted into the room, you know not too long after the phone call, he was actually on the phone with my mother when the police busted in a room and they took the phone and hung it up. So my mother you know, didn't know if I was in the room or not because Jeff had told my mother that he, he had sent me to go to this other people's place. So she didn't know I was in the room and it was about, I guess, 30 minutes later, they called up and they said, okay, we got him. and And she's like, I ain't worried about him. Where's my son? They said, oh, he was right there in the room. He's fine. And they took me outside and I was shaking because they busted a room with guns in my face. And they were like, are you cold? I'm like, no, I'm not cold. I'm scared. They're like, oh, there's no need for you to be scared. I'm, I'm like, I'm not scared now. I'm scared because y'all just had guns in my face. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was probably the most traumatic part of the whole experience was them busting in the room, putting guns on me, guns on him. Oh, my You know, gosh. it freaked me out. Yeah. Dang.
4: So they get you and do they take you straight to the airport to go home?
2: No, they took me straight to the uh, police station and the Anaheim police questioned me for probably an hour, hour and a half. And then, of course, I denied everything and he had dyed my hair black, so they were asking about that. Then I went from the Anaheim police department to the hospital. That's where they did the rape kit. That's where where I knew Jeff was in trouble. Um, You know, they took swabs and... I knew his, I guess we didn't call it DNA back then, but I knew his man material would be discovered. And after that, they took me to this like neglected child home for like a day. And then the March 1st, at like 1.10 in the morning, I flew out of LAX to New Orleans. And that's when I was reunited with all my parents. And when I got off the plane, there was a news camera there. And I had just woken up and... I see a news camera and I was, I was actually very upset. And at one point, my mother hugs me and, and you can see this on film. She hugs me and she whispers, smile and act like you're happy. And I, then I smile. And then the, 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 the reporter goes like, you yeah, know, what do you think about all this? And I was like, I don't know.
4: I mean, you were so young. I mean, that is just crazy that they were allowed to even be there and do that.
2: Well, at that point, they didn't know I'd been sexually abused. Mm. Or, you know, nowadays they won't even you know, name the victim. But my dad used to work at the uh, television station, and he used to entertain clients at a restaurant about less than a half a mile away from the uh, news group. He bowled with them. He was friends with them. And... So that's why they, they were there because daddy called him and said, look, you know, we found my son. And so they went to New Orleans to, you know, film my, you know, return home to my family. Mm -hmm. And actually John Pastorek was the guy who was at the airport in New Orleans and he's still at the same TV station today on WBRZ channel two in Baton Rouge.
4: Oh my gosh. That's crazy. So you come home, I'm sure that was a hard adjustment. Everybody's asking you questions. Your mom's probably worried out of her mind what happened while you were gone.
2: What was that like? Her biggest concern was getting my hair back to blonde. <laughs> like, she she hated my black hair. So, of course, I went to get my hair dyed, but I went to uh, – the next day, I think it was the next day, we went to the Baton Rouge Sheriff's Department. And that's, that's when things really got tough because – They took me in a room and they interviewed me. I want to say three hours. It seemed like three hours. It may have been an hour, but they asked me questions and I told, I told the truth about everything except for, did he touch you? I said, no. And they, they were mean to me, like they were trying to get me to crack Mm -hmm. and I wouldn't, I refused to. And they went back and told my mom and dad, they said, look, we've been interviewing children for years and either that man didn't touch him or he's so brainwashed. He'll never admit it.
4: Mm -hmm. And
2: they were wrong on both.
4: You were just scared.
2: Yeah, I I knew, like I said, I knew the hospital report was going to come back. So fast forward a week. My mother's like, Mike Barnett wants to come over and talk to me and your dad. And I don't know why. And I'm thinking to myself, I know why, because the hospital report came back. That's what I was thinking. I didn't tell her that, but that's what I was thinking. So the next day I get to the bus stop and my mother's sitting there in the car waiting for me. And I was like, okay, I know exactly what she's here for. So she told my brother, you know what? You just go play with your friends. I need to take Jody. I need to talk to him. So she takes me home. She sits me down on the couch and she says, um, Mike Burnett came over today and the hospital report came back and it was positive. Now I knew what that meant, but I was playing stupid. I was like, well, what does that mean? She said, that means that Jeff fooled with you. And I said, yep, he did. And, and I immediately told the truth, and, you know, we, we had that moment, and I left the house to go play with my friends, and I don't want to say it was the happiest I've ever been in my life, but I felt like the weight of the world had been lifted off my shoulders. I no longer had to carry around that secret, that burden, and I remember just riding my bike to my friend Crystal's house, and it was just, like, the most uplifting feeling. Like, I, I'm done with this. Well, I was mistaken. Yeah. Because I, I wasn't done with it. It only just started. Yeah. So now let's fast forward another week. All right. Jeff refused uh, extradition. extradition what, how, ext- he, he refused to be extradited back to Louisiana for like two weeks. So on March 16, 1984, uh, he they police went to go get him and bring him back to Baton Rouge. They went out to L.A. And they were pre- pre- prepared to either drive, fly, whatever Jeff wanted. Jeff said he'd fly. So. March 16th, they fly from Los Angeles to Baton Rouge. Well, unbeknownst to the police officers, the program director, his name was Bob Shadell. He's dead now, uh, was having lunch. And he looked at my dad and he said, hey, you know, have they brought your boy back? Not meaning me, meaning Jeff. And daddy said, no, I think he's back already. He goes, they wouldn't tell me anyway. And he goes, no, he's not back. He goes, I think he's coming back tonight. Let me go find out. So he went to the payphone, called the news station and said, no, no, he's coming back at uh, like 9.08 on you know flight. Well, now my dad had the information knowing he was coming back that night. And he had taken a gun from the house. He had it. Like, people think it was premeditated. And my dad wasn't that calculating. Like, he, he didn't plan on it. Like, he didn't plan on shooting. He didn't know what he was going to do, but he had the gun. And when he saw his face at that moment is when he decided, all right, yeah, I'm going to shoot him. And my dad, went on, he was actually talking to his best friend on the phone and he saw the news camera. So he decided he was going to get across from the news camera because he figured he would walk right by. At first, Mike Burnett came looking. He, Mike Burnett came walking out from behind the, you know, the uh, wall and He was looking behind the camera. There's like you know, 20-30 people that had gathered behind the camera thinking, ooh, a celebrity is gonna come walking by. Meanwhile, Mike Burnett told me this probably about six months ago. He goes, Yeah, he goes, All these people were sitting there waiting for like some celebrity, and he goes, They didn't realize it was two drunks and a pedophile. So Mike signals to Bud Connor, I right, come on. So Bud and Jeff come walking down and I think in my book I, I put sixteen or seventeen steps, and when they got parallel to the camera, my dad, my dad turned. He had on a baseball cap and sunglasses, so they they didn't recognize him. Turned around, shot him and killed him. And you can hear Mike Burnett go, "Whoa, God damn it, Gary, why, why, Gary?" And Mike Burnett actually ran, and my dad and Mike Burnett went to middle school and high school together, so they knew each other. So Mike Burnett actually went and shielded. My dad from Bud, because Bud didn't know my dad, and Bud reached for his gun, and Bud was going to shoot him, but Mike stopped him, and then Bud walks over, puts the gun to my dad's head, and goes, you son of a bitch, and he turns around and goes back to Jeff, and you can see him on the video, and he just like looks down, and he just shakes his head, and then Jeff was dead. He was dead before he hit the ground.
4: Oh, my gosh. <sighs>
2: it's so it's on YouTube for anyone who's listening and wants to see it. Yeah. I- actually... For whatever reason, it was trending today this morning on Twitter. Like it, it oh, really? it's crazy how often it pops up on my feed.
4: Kia,
2: movement that inspires.
4: Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are
0: limited. See retailer for details.
4: That's so crazy. I I uh, I did watch it the other day um, when my sister was telling me this story. We pulled it up and watched it, and it was just, I mean it's so crazy the the whole story is so crazy but how it ends with your dad shooting him which i don't blame him i mean any dad would want to kill who did that to their son so i mean it's and that's probably why mike you know shielded your dad because not only were they friends but he would have done the same thing if it was his son
2: Mo- that's what that's most people's feeling but you know what it hasn't happened that often. So, everybody wants to do it. My dad's the one who did it. Right. But, but that's not the happy ending. The happy ending, for those who don't know the story, is my dad was sentenced to five years probation and 300 hours of community service. And a lot of people felt that that was too harsh. Oh,
3: my God. Wow. Yeah, I was yeah. like, that's <laughs> <really> harsh. <laughs> yeah. yeah community would, service. I mean, I
4: don't even think I would have given him got a, pat, a reward. Yeah, a pat on the a back. For removing trash. Yep. Oh,
2: but people will comment, like, they should put a statue outside the airport of my dad. <laughs> like, I mean, it's crazy.
4: Is your dad still alive?
2: No, he died in October of 2014. He had a stroke in 2011, and so he was in a nursing home for the last couple years of his life. But, it, he, but he was happy. He was happy in a nursing home. I mean, but he just... He had, I say complications of a stroke, but I mean, he just died watching TV. He was laying in bed watching <laughs> TV because eyes were still open. Right. We knew he had a blood clot in the back of, back of his brain that could, like, be released at any point, and I, I'm assuming that's what happened. Just It just, the blood clot released and got him.
4: Yeah. So how did you, like, did they stick you in therapy or, I mean, I don't want to get too personal if you don't want to talk about it. Yeah, like yeah,
3: yeah. they had to take in your dad, well... You got back from that, then they were, your dad did that. But how long were you all separated? All, all right. right, so
2: Daddy shot him on a Friday night. He posted bail Monday morning. So he did do two days in Paris prison. Um, then they brought him to a mental facility, like a, a psychiatric hospital. And he was there for about a month. And my, my, my parents had been separated for like six months at the time. And they told my mother that he wasn't going to drink anymore. And my mother said, well, if he's not going to drink, he's welcome home. So daddy moved back home. And that was about a month after the shooting. Wow. And then after that, things went back to normal. As far as counseling, I told him I didn't want to go. But they told me I had to go in case it went to trial. They could show that I had gotten counseling. Mm-hmm. So I went probably for about six months to see a psychiatrist. And after six months, he told my mother, like, I don't need to see him anymore. He'll be all right.
1: Was you and your dad's relationship affected by the shooting and all of that?
2: Actually, at first, I was upset at my dad for shooting Jeff. Like, I cared about Jeff. I didn't like him molesting me. But other than that, like, I thought he was a good guy. But, I mean, you can't separate the two as an adult. But as a kid, that's how I felt. So at first, I was mad at daddy. But it probably was about the summer, so March – so probably July or August. That's what I told daddy. Like, you know, I, I don't hate you. I, I understand why you did what you did. And after that, I mean, I think we had an a, excellent relationship.
4: Do you have kids now? No, I don't. You don't. I'm, I'd be curious, like, what if you would shield and be overprotective of your kids because of what you went through?
3: I don't. Think you I,
2: don't I wouldn't say overprotective. I think I would be protective like most parents should be
4: mm-hmm.
2: like I mean in 1983 you know Jeff's like hey look June I'll, I'll bring the kids home after karate practice and she's thinking okay great I can finish dinner um you didn't have the awareness that we do now like I would never I would let my kids spend a night at no one's house you know what I'm saying like I mean I, things like that
0: mm-hmm.
2: but I, I, I would hope I wasn't overprotected but I probably would
3: be yeah yeah that's a situational dependent thing right there
4: Oh my I, this,
2: I, I'm going to
3: tell you why I don't have kids. I,
2: one night, my cat had been like sitting by the door, and it, it, he wasn't acting right. And a couple days later, I went to pick him up or pet him. I went to pet him, and I, I felt him wet moisture and about 11 o'clock at night. Well, I smelled my hand, and it, I thought it was poo. When I turned the light on, something had bit him. And he was had pus, and it was I was, was infected. Just it was terrible. Well, this is eleven o'clock at night. I need to get this cat to the vet, and I couldn't bring him to the vet from s- till seven o'clock in the morning. I didn't sleep, and that's a cat. Yeah. So if I had a kid, I don't, I don't want that worry.
4: It's a lot of worry. <laughs> that's what I'm saying, if I was your mama, during all that time, I, I mean, I, I probably would have
2: had a stroke. When my when I was in college, my little brother. He held his breath on the water too long and literally I had to say, like he drowned. So I pulled him out, I gave him off the mouth, and he was in the hospital for the next two days. And I remember sitting out there with my mother and she's smoking a cigarette and she's like, Kids, yeah, you'll never sleep at nothing Because I don't have them. I don't want them. I, like I said, I worry too much about my cat, let alone a, a child.
4: Yeah. Oh my gosh. That
2: is crazy. To me, the saddest part about the whole situation is people know my father is this you know, vigilante who took justice in his own hands, but my dad was a ploché, and he was the nicest, kindest person that I probably knew. No, knew. I mean, he would stop and pick up stray animals. You know, he would, I mean, I didn't drink in college, but every time I met him somewhere, hey, you want a beer? I'm like, no, I don't drink. He would buy beers for people his job was to entertain clients he was a salesman so for him to do what he did he had to be in so much pain to do that and and to me that's the saddest thing is that like I knew I was going to be fine he didn't
0: yeah
2: if he could have looked in a crystal ball and saw who I was in the future he probably wouldn't have did what he did but then again what he did helped shape me. So there's that dynamic. But my dad was really the kindest, sweetest man that I knew him and my uncle. They were, they were wonderful people.
4: I can tell you that if that happened to our son, I probably would have done the same thing. Same with Marcus. I mean that it's just a parental instinct to want to eliminate someone or something that hurts your child like that. Even yeah, if you are going to be me. okay. I mean, that is pure parental instinct, don't you think, babe? You
3: know, I, uh, absolutely. I, I, I comment on it. I don't know what I would do. I'm going to leave it at that. I just leave it open so <laughs> nobody <laughs> fucking tries it. Yeah, yeah.
1: Don't, just don't try
3: it. You don't have the imagination like I do. Trust me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of people say that. A lot
2: of people say that he got off easy.
4: Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I, I can't imagine it, but... Oh my gosh. I would just think, I mean, even when someone hurts their feelings, you want to hurt that person. It's just that parental instinct like, okay, you have to, it's almost like an animal instinct. You have to protect your children. And, and at, at all costs,
2: we were, my dad, we were raised Catholic, and my dad believed in the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Maybe not the don't cheat on your wife, but I mean, he, 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 you know, he did his community service at the church, so my dad was really uh, religious, but he believed thou shalt not kill unless you screw with his son, or screw his son, yeah. and that trumped it. So my dad, he lived with that burden that he took a human life. He didn't like that he took a human life, but he didn't regret what he did.
4: Yeah. Well, how did you get, I mean, I would think that that would, it just shows your mental strength to be able to move past that. Like, it sounds like you were getting off the bus before your dad even did that. So they obviously sent you back to school right afterwards. Was it an easy transition or?
2: Well, it was fairly easy to be, but, and I described this in the book, but it was, it was really a great moment. So I come back to school. Now we had dyed my hair back, To blonde, but it didn't come out blonde. Like it it came out like really crappy. Like I look like a a golden retriever. (laughs) And so I walk into the gym because before class started, we'd all meet up in the gym. So I walk into the gym. I look across the basketball court, and my friends were sitting on the stage. So I walk across the basketball court, and literally, the gym went quiet. They watched me walk across the, the basketball court. And I walk up to my friends, and they're just sitting there looking at me with like their just look on their face like they had seen a ghost. And I, I, I walked up to them and I said, What y'all looking at, looking at me like I've been kidnapped or something? <laughs> and they started laughing. A couple of the girls were crying, but that's when they realized I was still the same Jody be- that was before I was taken. So then we get to my homeroom class, and they have a big banner on the wall that said, Welcome back, Jody. And on the bulletin board, They had a picture of me with my signature. I'd signed somebody's like tablet and my signature underneath it. And next to that picture, and you can Google this, it said the boy in the plastic bubble dies. John Travolta played the kid in the TV movie, the boy in the plastic bubble. It said the boy in the plastic bubble dies right next to my picture. And I looked at my teacher and I said, y'all didn't give me much of a chance, did (laughs) y'all?
4: Oh my gosh.
2: (laughs) And that's when they realized, all right, Jody's Jody.
4: Yeah. That's a good Cajun sense of humor.
3: Yeah.
2: Well, my favorite, if you go to Amazon and read like the comments, one of them said, this book is funny. Yeah. And to me, that was a compliment because I wanted my book not just to be, you know, rape and killing. I wanted I want to have humor in it, too.
4: Yeah, well, humor gets you through the darkest times.
3: So was it awkward around the house? Or how long did, did everything just kind of smoothed out and went in its own direction?
2: It's, it's almost amazing how everything just kind of went back to normal. Um, mm. the first month or so was awkward because you know daddy was still trying to be daddy like you need to go to bed and you know now that i'm older i know what he was wanting me to go to bed for but he hadn't been there for like six months so i was able to stay up till you know 11 12 o'clock without daddy telling me to go to bed but you know now that i'm older i know he wanted me to go to bed because he wanted to spend some alone time with my mother
4: <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, I'm so glad that you like overcame all of that and were able to live. Uh, I mean, a lot of people would turn into a hot mess after that.
3: Yeah, I mean, what is the driving force in that direction? What, what- all right, so in
2: 1991, uh, we got a call from the Geraldo Rivera talk show to go on a show. And I wanted to go to New York. I'm like, hey, free chips to New York. Let's go. So me and Daddy flew to New York City. We filmed the show. and that's all I'm thinking of. Hey, this was great. First time in New York, wonderful. Well, the show aired, we filmed it in April, and it aired June. Well, about a week or two after the show aired, I got a call from Mike Barnett, same, same sheriff deputy that was like throughout the whole case. And he called me up and he said, look, I want you to notice this is going to be on the news site. It's going to be in the papers tomorrow. He goes, we just arrested this pastor. Who had been sexually abusing these two boys, and one of the boys saw you on the Geraldo show and told his mom, and we just arrested him. And that's the moment when I realized that wow, I could take this story and I could use something negative and turn it into something positive. And so, you know, when you hear people go, if I can only just help one person, mm-hmm. nope, I want to help as many as possible. I don't want I'm not gonna settle for just one. So that's why I decided that I would share my story and I would, you know, write the book. Uh, I eventually and at college, I joined a group called Men Against Violence, and we would do programs on campus about conflict conflict uh, resolution. I had a Mountain Dew. That's why I'm kind of jittery. Um, <laughs> then I ended up getting a job in Pennsylvania at a place called Victim Services Center of Montgomery County, which is just outside of Philadelphia. Um, our office is located in Norristown, and that's what we did. I would go to schools, and I would do, you know, keep in touch is safe and healthy. I would do, you know, dating violence. I would do, uh, sexual assault risk reductions to, to high school colleges. And that's what I kind of dedicated myself to doing.
4: That's awesome.
3: Yeah. Cause it's hard to do that, man. It's hard to turn around something in a, a, a situation like that, especially when it affects the whole family and push it into something that, that not only helps the family, but helps those around you.
2: I remember I was going on one of the, one of the talk shows. I've, I've been on Oprah, Montel, Maury, back when Maury was like serious. And I remember someone, one of the family members, saying, "Why doesn't Jody just let sleeping dogs lie?" And I'm like, "Because I feel like I can make an impact on other people. I can be a role model to survivors of sexual assault to let them know that you know I'm not scarred for life. I'm not damaged goods. I'm not ruined. I didn't have a traumatic childhood. I love my childhood. I wouldn't trade. I wouldn't change my childhood for anything."
4: Yeah.
2: I mean, I guess if I had to, I would. <laughs> but, yeah. I, but it's made me the person I am.
4: That's awesome. So, would you encourage, or well, when you do these talks to sexual abuse um, forums or whatever, do you encourage people to actually come out and and tell their parents immediately if someone touches them, or like psychologically, well, what's the best thing to do for that?
2: Well, when I was working at victim services, we would teach the children safety rules. No, go and tell. If someone touches you inappropriately, you say no to that person, you go, you get away from that person, and then you tell an adult. Now, I've kind of shifted my way of thinking because we're going to put the burden on the kid. Like, it's your job to make sure you don't get sexually abused. I think it's the parent's job to make sure they don't allow their children too far away.
3: Both probably because you're training the next generation not to let it happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: But, but yeah, but you still want to have those open conversations with your kid. Like when I was ki- uh, young, like probably eight or nine years old, I think it was 81, so I'd have been nine. They had a show called Fallen Angel. It, it was a, like a TV movie, and my mother sat us down and made us watch it, and she explained to us that there were people out there that would take advantage of children, and this guy was like getting the kids into like child porn or like taking naked pictures of them. And so when Jeff. First first he ever touched my private parts, I thought to myself, oh, wow, he's like one of them people mommy told me about. So that's why I, I never blamed myself is because I was prepared. I knew that there were people out there. Again, I'm still 10, so I don't know how to tell her. But I mean, looking back, if you look at how he kind of integrated himself and groomed the family and, and started spending time with me, Especially, mm-hmm. I tell parents all the time, if someone wants to spend more time with your child than you do, that's a red flag. That's not a red flag. It's a red rocket.
4: Mm-hmm. That is so crazy. Oh, that's hard. It's for us. We have a 10 year old boy. So <laughs> we're like over here. Foster,
3: we talk to him about it all the time.
4: Yeah, we always talk Don't to him about Don't let
3: him touch it. It. you. You feel uncomfortable. You know, just walk away. And they're, they're getting to the age now. There, I mean, they, talk, they, they You know, they'll throw me attitude. So,
4: <laughs> well, now, and our two little ones are fifteen months apart. So, our daughter is just a year younger, and she'll kick him in his private, and he's like, "Mom, Addy touched me in my no-no square." <laughs> oh my <God>. <laughs> <laughs> but she just kicked him. Um,
2: so, yeah, yeah, I don't think he's too young. If you, if you got a ten-year-old, you can sit him down and watch the the fifteen-minute like a little ESPN e60 that, that we're on. And, and you can, you can definitely talk to them about it. I mean,
0: yeah. bring it
2: up. I mean, I, don't obsess over it, but yeah. every time a, a teachable moment occurs, you know, talk to them.
3: Yeah.
4: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well thank you for sharing your story and being vulnerable to that. I mean, I know that's gotta be, you've probably done it so many times, but it's it, no matter how many times you tell a story about the, worst week of your life, we know that personally, that it's, it's never fun. So thank you for opening up and sharing that and it will help other people.
3: I mean, I understand when your, your, your point of view and your perspective, and there's probably a lot of, there's some wisdom that's curled in there now, actually. Even for as young as you are, those experiences bring that out. And, and it's hard for people to understand. I had the best childhood ever. I wouldn't change one thing in my life. And I say that with complete confidence. And people are like, people are like man, man, you've been to hell and back multiple times. I'm like, I sure have. You know, somebody had to go through it. So they can come back around and tell you about it, teach you about it. I mean, Exactly. And, I mean, you want somebody else to go through it? I love my, my friends and family so much, I wouldn't want them to go through it. And it upsets them that I have to do it, but then so be it. Somebody's got to pull it right. And then it just kind of – you talk about it, and you, you, people around you, they kind of rebuild that confidence. So – Good job, man. Don't don't never quit, man. Never quit.
4: Yeah. You have an awesome never quit story. And we're family. I
3: know. <laughs> yeah, and, and we're family. <laughs> on top of on top of everything else, it's like, yeah, pull over. Get your ass somewhere where I can hear what you're saying.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and your niece yeah. is friends with our son Hunter.
2: Yeah, no, my niece and him are really good friends. Like like literally when I when you emailed me, I talked to her and she's like, I just talked to him earlier today.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He um when When I was emailing back and forth with with you, he had, I called him and he was like, yeah, she just Snapchatted me. They, I think they talk often, so.
2: Well, and then I told my mother, oh, I was like, oh, uh, I got contacted. They had a podcast, Lone Survivor, and my mother goes, oh, that's Mason's friend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I was like, no, no, no. I mean, this is the one that the book and the movie. She's like, no, that's that's Mason's friend. I'm like, no, it can't be. It's got to be that's so the funny. Other person or whatever.
4: Yeah, that's our uh, our oldest graduated from LSU in May, and he just moved back to Houston and, but he loved it. He had a good old college experience. Experience. He had a lot of fun.
3: Yeah. Cool.
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, she's been known to do that. Now, the last year and a half, I don't know how much fun college is. But yeah. I know back in the day, it was wonderful.
4: Well, he was there when they won the,
3: uh, That's the, the championship. national
4: championship. Oh, yeah, he had a hell of a time. Yeah, he had a great time. And Marcus got to go hang out with his fraternity and do all that fun stuff. So
3: That happened one time. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the next time y'all are in
2: Baton Rouge or the next time I'm in Houston, we'll have to get together. Yeah, all right, yeah for sure.
3: Definitely.
4: We would love that.
3: So thank you again, man. Thanks for taking the time, brother. We appreciate you.
4: Yeah, have a safe drive. Thanks, Thanks, Jody. Thanks
3: for having me. Later,
2: man. Uh Bye. Bye.
1: Bye. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the podcast. Jody, thank you so much for sharing your story, man. It was uh, just insane how you were able to overcome uh, so much and what you're doing now is even more important to just to just be able to be a a voice of reason and someone who can just offer guidance in such a hard experience in life thank you so much again for sharing your story hey if you guys haven't already make sure you're following us on social media teamneverquit.com social If you're not on Patreon, you should be because we are doing some awesome stuff there, and we've got some amazing things in the works. That's patreon.com slash teamneverquit. You're going to want to check that out. There's all brand new merch in the store, so if you haven't gotten a T-shirt, if you haven't gotten an autographed book, if you haven't got stickers, bracelet, whatever it may be, there's a bunch of new stuff in the shop, Shop shop.teamneverquit.com. We will see you guys next week.